This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The spread of the new coronavirus or COVID-19 is affecting more than our health and our economy. It may also change some of our cultural norms, starting with a handshake. Some medical professionals and others are calling for an end to this common token of friendship, which dates back to the 5th century as a way to prevent spreading the virus. Social media is full of calls to cancel all handshaking and offering alternatives like a fist or elbow bump. The Catholic Church has made changes to its practice, calling on other ways for parishioners to wish each other peace. It was a discussion we had on Fight Back on Thursday. Libby Snymer was joined by family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, etiquette expert Jessica LaRusso, Neil McCarthy, the Archdiocese of Toronto's Director of Public Relations and Communications, and Dr. Sohail Gandhi, President of the Ontario Medical Association. So whenever you've got flus, colds, a lot of infectious bugs that tend to run through a community, uh, I think that's a reasonable thing to, to consider. And we've seen some really nice creative alternatives. You mentioned the fist bump. There's I've also seen elbow bumps. Um, I don't think this means that you shouldn't extend friendship to your colleagues or your friends or your patients, but I think it just shows an awareness that you're trying to help keep everyone safe, and, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's um, that shows a lot of respect for other people. Let's bring in Neil McCarthy. Uh, how have you changed the practice in the church? Well, actually, if we go back a few years when we had the SARS situation in the greater Toronto area, um, we did at that time ask our parishes to refrain from um, offering the handshake at the sign of peace and to uh, replace that with a, a nod or a bow or a smile. And so interestingly enough, we did get to a point after SARS um, where we went back to sort of our regular liturgical practices. But at that time, uh, many people kind of continued with the nod or the bow, and that sort of became the, the custom for many parishes. We've got uh, 225 in the Archdiocese of Toronto. So I know at my own church last weekend, uh, I think one person reached over to shake my hand who I knew quite well. But um, beyond that, it was um, really just the nods and the bows that have have been in place for for a number of years. Um, You know, obviously we want to um, be prudent, and we also want to make sure we're not panicking. So it's that, that balance that's really important because, um, you know, for so many people, they want to make sure that they're still friendly and kind to their neighbors, and we want to encourage that, obviously, but we also want to be prudent and uh, and safe for everyone. Uh, let's bring in Jessica LaRusso. Now, Jessica, what happens, I've, I've cited the example of German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Uh, right. She went to uh, shake a hand or, or um, hug, and uh, the other person recoiled. What do you say in that situation if somebody extends a hand for a handshake and and the the, the person on the other end doesn't want to do it? But so I, I mean, how do you avoid bad feelings? Well, there's many reasons why someone wouldn't uh, want to shake your hand. I, I think she handled it brilliantly. She said okay. She agreed. She didn't push it, and then she came back to actually acknowledge 
him and greet him again. But she showed her hands, which I think is really, really important because even though we want to stop, uh, you know, shaking hands because there is uh, a concern, we still have to make those signals, those physical signals, uh, nonverbal communication to show that they're important, we acknowledge them, and we trust them. So I liked her when she came back and acknowledged him with the open hands. And there's many, many ways to do that. I would like to bring in Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. You think, um, no, we shouldn't ban handshakes. No, I, I don't think we should ban handshakes at all. Why is that? Because we are surrounded by a microbial world. There's nothing on our surfaces anywhere that is free of microbes. You recognize your nose, your eyes. Your, it, there's microbes everywhere. In fact, we cannot live without such microbes. You were saying that if a patient, Dr. Gorfinkel, uh, you know, outstretches their hand, you'll shake their hand. I will most definitely shake their hand, and I will not hesitate to shake their hand. I think that we've been using human touch for the millennia, and we will continue to use human touch. Now, do I need to wash my hands? Of course I'll wash my hands. But that said, I'm not going to back away in fear when my patient reaches out their hand to shake it. Jessica LaRusso, what would you like to leave us with? When we look at etiquette and manners, uh, modern etiquette and manners are really mirrored in safety rules. If we're pleasant to each other and acknowledge each other and really consider the other person, that's what, that's what I would like to leave you with today. Iris, what would you like to leave us with? Keep things in perspective. 30 cases in all of Canada so far, 29 of which have essentially been common colds. Thousands of deaths from influenza. I, I think the take-home message is your chance of actually getting coronavirus is, at, at least at this point, for all intents and purposes, zero. And as far as shaking someone's hand, if you're my patient, hold it out to me because I'm going to take it and shake it. And Dr. Gandhi? So again get information from a reputable source. Go to Ontario.ca slash coronavirus. It's reputable. It's up to date. Ontario's physicians have contributed to that website. Uh, Practice good hygiene at all times. Wash your hands for 20 seconds. And let's not not let fear uh, set in. Dr. Sohail Gandhi, president of the OMA, family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, etiquette expert Jessica LaRusso, and Neil McCarthy, the Archdiocese of Toronto's Director of Public Relations and Communications. Speaking of hand washing, we've been taking the challenge here at Zoomer Radio, coming up with songs to sing while washing our hands for the recommended time of 20 seconds. Check out Libby Snymer and Eva D. <laughs> Across the water, water. Along with Neil, Sam, and me on Zoomer Radio's social media sites. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Have you moved your clocks an hour ahead? We switched back to daylight saving time at 2 o'clock this morning. Many people argue our twice-a-year time changes are pointless in the 21st century and cause more harm than good, and that we should get rid of them and stick to either standard or daylight saving time. Libby was joined on Thursday by Dr. Julie Carrier, Scientific Director at the Centre for Advanced Research in Sleep Medicine in Montreal. At the individual level, I mean, the change in the spring 
although it's more positive because we are going to uh, summer and, and the spring and we have more light, it's a little bit more difficult for our biological clock and our sleep because we will miss uh, an hour of sleep, actually, and we will have to get up when uh, our biological clock will not be ready to, to get up. So uh, it's a little bit like uh, a jet lag of an hour of jet lag. And the good message, though, is that you can adapt to that quite rapidly. So the way to adapt is, one, to start now, uh, to go to bed a little bit earlier, maybe 15 minutes earlier every day up to the time change. And when you wake up, to expose yourself as much as possible and rapidly to light because our biological clock is able to change its biological time uh, with the light exposure. Now, you were talking about the studies that are showing that there are some, at the population level, there are some studies that have reported, and you're right, like increase in car accidents or increase in cardiovascular diseases uh, associated with the time change. The reason why this is the case uh, are not entirely clear. For instance, in the spring, uh, since you lack a, a, an hour of sleep, you may be late for work, uh, you could be rushed out, etc. But that's sleepy. true that some studies are in sleepy. And yeah. that's true that some studies have shown that you have some negative impact. So as a sleep researcher, of course, I would... Uh, I will love that we don't change time twice per year. So uh, in terms of sleep and circadian rhythms, I have to say that uh, it, we have major uh, public health concerns that are going way beyond the change in time. For instance, we just uh, released a, a public health campaign on sleep called Sleep on It. Because we have some, uh, as Canadians, some very important issues with sleep. One, a major proportion of the population, even if they don't have sleep problems, decide that sleep is not important and they are cutting their sleep up to the, the point that we have a very sleep deprived population. And the second major point, uh, an important point to make, is that unfortunately there are 25% of the population that is suffering from a sleep disorder. And since sleep is crucial for cognitive, emotional, and physical health, these people need to find solutions and they need to have uh, actually okay. uh, possibilities to treat uh, their sleep disorders. <clears throat> there is an argument that we could at some point select what would be the best time for your biological clock. Um, there are plenty of other stuff associated with time. For the, the people going to school, for the workers, they will need to uh, come back. Uh, they need to wake up at a certain time and they need to come and travel back to their home at a certain time also. And the fact, for instance, that it's darkness during traffic uh, peaks could be uh, something that is negative. So I'm uh, so that's why it's I'm not saying that they are not research. I think that uh, for and it may be different uh, for different uh, 
provinces also, depending, or, or cities even, because depending of where they are on the time zone, if you are closer to the time zone or, or further away, it may change. So that's not a, an easy way to pick the right, right time. But what I'm saying from my point of view as a sleep researcher is that it would be better that we pick one <laughs> and that we stick to it because that will prevent adaptation twice a year, which is not necessarily necessary in a, in a population that already has some, some sleep issues and, and sleep deprivation uh, chronic. Dr. Julie Carrier, Scientific Director at the Centre for Advanced Research in Sleep Medicine in Montreal. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. There have been some major developments south of the border in the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. On Wednesday, billionaire Mike Bloomberg dropped out following a disappointing showing in the Super Tuesday contest. And on Thursday, Elizabeth Warren took her name out of the running. Former Vice President Joe Biden won big on Tuesday, with Bernie Sanders running second, solidifying a race between the moderates and left-wingers. To discuss the outcome, Libby was joined on Wednesday by Dr. Gary Nordlinger, adjunct professor of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University, and Dr. Chris Cooper, political science professor at Western Carolina University. We now have a two-person race. There was some question as to whether that would be the case. I think it's important to remember, though, that we're talking about a resurrection because we started with Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, not exactly the most demographically diverse states in the country. So I think if different states had gone first, instead of a resurrection, we might be talking about kind of a continued trajectory. There was also the factor, Dr. Nordlinger, that uh, Joe Biden was kind of uh, uh, stepping over his words and not seeming very with it for a while. Listen, Joe Biden has had foot and mouth disease his entire career. Uh, But his last two debate performances, he was so much more improved. He had fire in his belly. He answered the questions in complete, concise sentences. So, you know, what we see from Biden when he stumbles over his tongue is the same Joe Biden that's been around since he first came into the Senate in the 1970s. Given this contest between left and right, is this uh, flight to safety the right way to describe it? Are are Democrats afraid of Sanders? If you look at all the results going back to Iowa, if you add up the total number of votes cast to the moderate candidates, Compared with the votes cast for Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, the moderates have been in the majority. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the big question for Sanders is he just seems plateaued at 30 percent. Is there any ability for him to to expand his appeal? There's still 62 percent of the delegates left to be selected. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Sanders does seem to have kind of a, a lower ceiling than some of these other candidates do. And I also think this is an example of the process kind of working the way it's supposed to, right? We have this sequential primary system, so we have states that go in order. And the idea is that slowly we go from a big field down to a smaller, more manageable field. And that's exactly what's happened. And clearly the folks that have dropped out, including Mike Bloomberg today, have gotten on the Biden uh, bandwagon. 
The other thing, the way a lot of people describe Sanders is that he's kind of a, a mirror reflection of Donald Trump in that he appeals to people who feel dis, dis, disaffected and less behind. He does have a touch of populism about him. Uh, would that make him? And, and I think in some polls, there are some polls that show that he would defeat Trump if the election were today. Yeah, I'm, I'm always a little suspect about polls the, about, you know, what would happen if kinds of things this far in front of the election um, as to whether he is the polar opposite. I, I think his certainly his supporters are similar in some ways than Trump. I think it is important to note, though, that as much as Bernie may cast himself as the revolution candidate, he is a sitting United States senator. So he is both arguing that he is anti-establishment as he is very clearly part of the establishment. Thanks to Hitler's National Socialist Workers Party and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, we just don't like the word socialist in the United States. And that would be an albatross around Sanders' neck in the general election. Final question, is Donald Trump vulnerable? I mean, uh, the stock market has started to come back after last week. But if things go south and if the coronavirus thing gets worse, is he vulnerable because of that? I mean, I think, yes, he is vulnerable. But this is a 50-50 country. I think this is an incredibly polarized country like we have not been since the Civil War. So I think every candidate at the national level is vulnerable and every candidate at the national level is potentially competitive. Partisanship is what's driving the day in American politics right now, and it looks like it will continue going forward. So certainly Trump is vulnerable, but I also would not bet against him at the same time. I'd probably just avoid the bet altogether. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think assuming the economy doesn't tank or the coronavirus becomes his equivalent of you know Hurricane Katrina, which started the St. George W. Bush, I personally think Donald Trump wins. He at least wins the electoral vote, even if not the popular vote. Because we don't have a national election, there will be millions of anti-Trump votes wasted in states like New York and California. That was Libby Snymer's conversation on Wednesday with Dr. Gary Nordlinger, adjunct professor of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University, and Dr. Chris Cooper, political science professor at Western Carolina University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Tax time is upon us, and that means it's time for even more careful planning when it comes to your money and paying taxes. On Wednesday, Mark Halpern dropped by Fight Back to help us out with this. Mark is CEO of WealthInsurance.com, a certified financial planner, trust and estate practitioner, and master financial advisor in philanthropy. So we just finished RRSP season. Yep. And uh, hopefully people made their contribution because it's nice the government gives us some advantages to save taxes and save for our retirement. But, um, you know, just like there was a deadline for March 1st for RSPs and there's a deadline for our taxes on April 30th, we're really good at working when we have deadlines. So really now when it comes to taxes, you have to start planning. What about uh, you're talking about getting streams of income going? What can you do now to make that happen? So there are really traditional investments that, you know, are fully guaranteed. But the challenge with those are we're experiencing the lowest interest rates that we've had in the last hundred years, right? And the highest tax. So another interest rate cut today. There, there you go. So yeah. that that's challenging, especially when you're relying or counting on income. 
right? So, and then of course you have choices in terms of investments. Volatility though is included with that in terms of stocks or mutual funds or ETFs, et cetera. Um, and then you can go to more what I call alternative investments. Alternative investments could be investing in things like real estate, like uh, mortgage investment funds or REITs where, you know, they're connected to real estate and they provide a, a, a regular ongoing stream every month that's pretty safe, you know, and it's also connected to real estate, which is not a, a replenishing uh, asset that we have. There's only so much space that we have here in, in terms of buildings, whatever. So there are definitely things that are out there. And then there are more uh, advanced things like setting up things like annuities. Annuities are are they offer somebody a guaranteed income stream. Um, and, and then they're also using tax exempt insurance as a way to shelter your money and grow it on a tax free basis and access it on a tax free basis and pass it along on a tax free basis. So I would say that there's no like cookie cutter here. Everybody's got a unique situation and, and it's important that people take care of this clearly while the sun is shining. One of the things that comes along with tax time, capital gains. Yes. Well, let's just talk about taxes in general. Okay. I think it's very important that people have to realize that, um, yes, you pay taxes while you're alive every year on your, uh, on, on any income. You pay taxes on employment income, income taxes. You pay taxes on investments. And, you know, it can be for anybody who's earning $220,000 or more. You know, the, the tax on sort of those types of investments can, can range anywhere between 27 and 54%. That's a big number. So, uh, capital gains is really something that involves investing in, let's say, real estate, investment real estate or stocks or, you know, stocks or ETFs or mutual funds or having private equity. You have a business. And the way that it works is if you started off, it was worth a hundred thousand and now it's grown to $200,000. We should all be so fortunate. So there's a gain of a hundred thousand dollars and 50% of that is taxable. So approximately 27% in Ontario would be a tax that you'd have to pay to the government. So that's $27,000 on a $200,000 asset that you had. So it, it, it definitely is something that requires people's attention. Is it too late to sort that out? I mean, you could always, uh, you always, we know we can offset capital gains with capital losses, something your accountant should be doing for you. Yeah, at this stage of the game, for the tax year of 2020, right? This is, we're paying taxes on our income from 2019. So, but certainly going forward, it's definitely something you could do. And as you said, yes selling off losses at the end of the year and then having those losses offset against your gains indefinitely is a great way of of doing some planning to offset, offset some of those taxes. The other thing is just how you set things up in your will and who's going to be the ultimate owner and benef or beneficiaries of your assets. And then there's another way to offset some of these capital gains taxes. Imagine somebody has a cottage. That's really near and dear to Canadians. You have a cottage and it's grown to a million dollars in cost and it, it started off costing you 200000 So there could be a $200,000 bill that the family's going to have to come up with. How do they pay that? They're either going to have the cash, not likely. They're going to have to borrow money, not very likely, or they're going to have to sell the cottage. I know that happens it. so often. Yeah. So what they could do is they could use something called a tax exempt life insurance. In this case, it would be 
best set up on a joint policy between a husband and wife, or you can set it up on a single life basis as well. And for pennies on the dollar, you can actually create the money that's going to be necessary to pay those ultimate estate taxes. And that's generally the least expensive way to go about doing that. But again, Libby, it comes back to planning and sort of looking at individual situations specifically to see what, what would fit that for them. Mark Halpern, CEO of WealthInsurance.com, certified financial planner, trust and estate practitioner, and master financial advisor in philanthropy. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ron in Guelph, who weighed in on whether we should get rid of the handshake. I'm 71 years old, so obviously I grew up in an era when um, you were taught as a child to uh, be respectful and shake your somebody's hand. I mean, I, I drive the school bus, I mean, with the kids on I bus. I mean, um, for the most part, I give the kids a fist bump and they all love it. I mean, you still, you can still, nothing wrong with smiling as you, you know, give somebody a friendly fist pump, you know. I guess it's just, you know, in this era, you know, I'm, I mean, we're so much worried about whether it's the flu or the COVID-19. Um, everybody's worried about it, so our, our time's changing. Who knows? That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.